Splinter Business Stories. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to Splinter Business Stories, the podcast where we discuss daily working disasters and life as it is. This coronavirus outbreak made many, many people realize how things and what things are really matter and what does not matter at all. And I feel that when it's over, many beautiful minds will find the understanding um, of what truly is important. Your health, your peace, your ability to find a solution fast and with limited resources. All this counts. As well as your understanding that changes are inevitable and you should not be afraid of them. Old systems crush, new systems come, old approaches die out, new efficient approaches replace them. So my message for today's episode will be very simple. And this too shall pass. Meaning everything will be gone at some point and you should make your mind flexible to react to such changes properly. It might not be very usual for me to start my show with such a note, but I received so many messages on my LinkedIn where people would share their insecurities and loss of hope for tomorrow that I had to mention it at the very beginning. Things will change, but they will change for better. And post-COVID situation will be the best one to take action and make your ideas a new reality. And while your fellow IT comrade is being philosophical here, the guest of today's episode is watching me pretty carefully, thinking this intro, you know, should be done already. So, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Shepard is today with us. For those who might have missed our previous episode, he's an entrepreneur, author, and angel investor. Almost like Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I would uh, I would love to be Iron Man, but <laughs> thank you for that fabulous introduction. You got it. <laughs> Well, that's a huge pleasure to see you again after our previous conversation. And uh, it was pretty obvious that we really have enough topic, not for the second episode, for, but for many episodes to come. Thank you. Well, for this episode, I saved something pretty, you know, interesting. Because since my podcast is mainly for IT community, and I know that there are really many bright minds there who are thinking about starting something on their own. And I know that you've started a lot of businesses. You have pretty impressive uh, investing portfolio. So I think this topic of the pot, like topic of startuping and topic of like starting out the business will give a lot of value to the audience. What do you think? I, I hope so. I mean, my uh, that's my life mission right now to help more entrepreneurs succeed. And so if I can help, I, I would love to offer anything I can. Perfect. Uh, so I was thinking maybe starting up with the main problems startups have nowadays, because I have noticed since I work with startups, but on a different side, I help them to get there, you know, in front of investors and bring their awareness to, you know, to their product. I've noticed one very obvious problem that most of the startups who come to me have. They absolutely do not know who their audience is. So they build a product and they ask me to create their buyer's portrait or audience portrait. And then they literally ask me to map their product with the right audience. 
Is this what you see quite often or that's that's just I'm so lucky to meet such startups? No, it is common. I mean, when I studied uh, for the last three years, I've done uh, over 1200 interviews with a lot of different folks. And initially, you know, my mission is to help more entrepreneurs succeed and by doing so uh, help with wealth distribution. And so when I got into this, the first thing I said is I said, okay, well, if 80 to 90% of entrepreneurs are failing, why are they failing? But that was the wrong question at that point. What I was uh, actually digging for, and I found out later, was at what stages are they failing? And then why are they failing at those stages? And when I was creating Boss, the business operating support system, the first step that I realized was that the the first place that they fail, I mean, there's there's a place before ideation, people that never even get anything off the ground, but then the, the next one is after ideation. So they have an idea, they do a pitch deck, um, they go and they try to raise money. Some of them can't raise money. I don't count those because sometimes those are just bad ideas. But the ones that have good ideas that still fail after they raise money, a lot of times the reason why is because they don't have what I call a North Star. Mm-hmm. And a North Star is made up of different pieces. So what is your business and what is your product? Who is your customer and who is the buyer of your business? When do you want to sell your business, the time horizon? And how much do you want to sell your business for? How much do you want to make personally? And so one of the things that I realized is that people don't have a North Star. It's like crossing the ocean without having guidance, right? Or having your GPS on saying, I'm going to go from my house to your house and not having any directions. Mm-hmm. And you can drive around forever and you'll just burn capital and waste time. So when you look at the North Star and you decide on what, that's just description, feature, and benefit. And then when you look at why, that's problem, solution, and impact. And when you look at who, that's your ideal customer profile and your ideal buyer profile. Now, this is critical. And the reason why is because if you want to build and sell a business, you can't decide that you want to sell the business one day and then just sell it. That, that's not how things actually work. And I'm talking from 25 years of experience. They all have the same pattern. The pattern is, is that you figure out who your ideal buyer is, right? So this is a profile of the company that's going to buy your company. And then you figure out what their ideal customer profile is. And their ideal customer profile must match your ideal customer profile. The reason why is because the buyer of your business in a strategic, which is what everybody wants because they have the high multiples, they have already absorbed their CAC, their customer acquisition costs. They've already paid for their customers. And so essentially, when they look at buying your custom, your business, they're buying your business to sell to the customers they've already paid for. That's the margin they make. That's the arbitrage that they make. Mm-hmm. So if you decide and you go sit there and build your, your customer base and build your customer base, I've seen this happen. I can't countless numbers of times. They build it, they build it, and then they go, okay, we're ready to sell. And then the buyer says, no, that's not my customer. I'm not interested. So because they can't get that leverage, right? So... If you sit down and you, you figure out using what I call customer stories or buyer stories, this is I am so-and-so, I work at this position, mm-hmm. I want to do this so that I can do that, right? Just like you would with a user story in Agile. <clears throat> and when you do that, you create a customer ICP, an ideal customer profile, an IBP, and that IBP has an ICP baked into it. And when they match up, now what you're doing is you're growing the business for an acquisition, 
the reason why I've been able to sell businesses in like three years uh, at two to X, two to five X returns, right? Which is pretty crazy. People just blow and I've been successful 100% of the time is because I start with the end in mind. I start with this idea, right? Mm -hmm. So I sit down and say, I'm building this business for these people and and those people are already customers of these buyers. Now, when you look at a business and you're driving to an exit, the value drivers are growth, margin, and retention. Growth says that people like your product and will buy it. Retention says that they will stay paying for your product over time. And margin says you can do it at, at, at scale, right? So when you go to sell your business, you want to show that you have growth, margin, retention with the same I, ICP as they have, with the same customer that they have. So they see it as a strategic. And that's how you get your multiple up. So okay. the last business that I sold um, was a couple, two months ago. It had $2.2 million in revenue. We sold it for $48,750. All right. So obviously, huge multiple. And that's because three years before that, we had identif- identified three buyers. You always want to do three to five buyers. We identified three buyers. We got their ICPs and we matched the product that we were building and the customers that we that we brought on, on to the same customers they have. Then when we went to them, we said, listen, we have, uh, we started with a base of customers of 800 uh, ideal customer profiles that matched exactly the customers that you're going after. And we were able to get 30 of them and we've been able to keep them for 24 months. And we did it at 70 points to the gross margin. And they were like, that's exactly what we want. You've proven now that if we buy your company, that the thousands of customers that we have will buy your your product, uh, which is all they want. And this is really fundamental because when you go and you raise capital in the very beginning, what I hear most of the time is I, I sit down with somebody, <clears throat> I one this morning, how much money are you trying to raise? And they're like, we're trying to raise $5 million. And I'm okay, okay, what's the use of funds? You know, Where are you going to spend the money? And they're like, okay, 50% of it is going to go to sales and marketing for growth. And I'm like, okay. <clears throat> so that says that you're going into your growth part of your, you know, the, the growth stage. So that's like sort of series seed before growth in this case, right? In in this in this particular business. I said, okay, I understand that's what you're doing. Tell me what your go-to-market strategy is. And then they mm-hmm. described their go-to-market strategy. And I said, how does that align with your buyers? 99% of the time, they don't even know who the buyer is, right? And I'm like, that's like building a product without having a customer, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you solve that problem by offering these engineers a customer uh, after they built a product, which is usually the reverse, right? You want to have a customer, you solve a problem for something that's existing instead of a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. It's a problem that you have a solution. So, and, and it's the same thing with a buyer, right? Somebody that's trying to buy your business, this problem they're trying to solve is some problem that their exact customers have that you solve. And that's how you get the high multiples. So when I looked back and I said, okay, rolling back to the initial question, when I looked at why are businesses failing and at what stages are they failing, they fail at different stages for different reasons. The big stages are before they get into their pre-seed round, obviously after their pre-seed round, at their seed round, at their series seed round, and then at their A round, and then the final one skips to when they go for acquisition, right? And so they end up raising money, chasing this exit, and every time you raise money, you kick out the exit, right? 
because the investors want to return, right? So the investors, every time you raise money, you dilute everybody. And by doing so, now you have to kick out the exit because you have to sell for more money. Mm-hmm. And then you have to raise money again, and then you do it again. You get caught in this circle. just keeps going around, spinning around. And the, the business eventually gets to the point where it, it's valuation, the valuation which grew over time because of the round of funding that you guys. So if your valuation is a million and you raise a million, now your you know, post-money valuation is two million. So the next round has to be at least two million, right? And this grows over time. And now you get to a situation where the business – has to be sold for more money than it's worth. And then you have to recap the business and you know people go out of business and a lot of things happen. So what I tell people is I say, listen, when you talk about why people are failing and what points people are failing at, let's start at the first failure point. And mm-hmm. the first failure point is understanding where the hell you're going, right? <laughs> what, what does success look like? And, and where are you going to get there? And that's why we have the what. You know, what is my company? And then what is my product? Description, feature, benefit. Very simple. And then who, that's the profiles. When, that's the time horizon. How much, that is basically the North Star that makes up the description of where you're going, what it's supposed to look like when you get there, and how long it's going to take you to get there. It's a GPS for your business. Oh, and yeah. That's, that's how I start people out, right, <laughs> is, is on that exact structure. Sure. Well, sometimes it seems pretty obvious, but when you talk it over, it uh, still becomes very eye-opening when you understand that many people, they have no clue what they are doing. But also a very interesting thing, which I um, could hear from your you know, little monologue. Uh, well, I heard that uh, you're very focused on selling the business. So is it the most optimal for startups to look for acquisition from the very first point? Or there are cases when acquisition is not optimal solution for their future. There are scenarios, but the, you know, as a entrepreneur first, mm-hmm. you know, because I was an entrepreneur first before I was an investor, and so I have a perspective that's a little different. I have both the entrepreneur perspective and the investor perspective. Mm-hmm. But as an entrepreneur, what you need to understand is the investor's perspective. If you're raising capital. Because if you're raising capital, the time cost and the time loss of opportunity, meaning the the money that you make on your money as an investor, is critical. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're raising capital, that investor doesn't get their their benefit for giving you capital, you know, their gain on that capital until you sell. Mm -hmm. So if you are raising capital, it is fundamental to show the the investors that you have a plan to get them their money back. Plus their profit. Otherwise, sure. you're not going to get their money, right? Like, it's even if you were to loan money to somebody, the first question you would ask is, can you, you know, if you go buy a house, the bank wants to know that you can pay them back, right? Sure. Same thing with investing in a business, right? I want to know if I give you a million dollars, I want to know when and how much money I'm going to get and what your plan is to make that happen, mm-hmm. right? And so <clears throat> if you're raising capital, Yes, and you have to be thinking about the exit the entire time. Now, what I'm not saying is build a shitty company because (laughs) a shitty company is not going to be acquired. It's kind of a – people go, well, then are you saying that you should just build it really quick and sell it? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's dumb, right? I mean nobody's going to buy a bad company. You have to build a really good company for that to happen. What I'm saying is you need to plan for that to happen, and then it's a given that you have to build a good company. 
Now, if you're not taking investment capital and you're building a lifestyle company, you know, something where, you know, you're going to keep it for the long term, that's a different strategy. But you should still be thinking the same way. You should still be thinking, what does success look like? Maybe your North Star isn't exiting the business, but it is being able to spend more time with your family and getting to a certain amount of income so that you could live off that business, Mm -hmm. right? So you still have to have a North Star. And if you're building a business for an IPO, same story. I mean, IPOs have changed. It used to be that you would IPO a business because you need money for growth. But if you look at what happened with Uber and Airbnb and everybody Mm -hmm. else, that's what their plan was, and they got slammed. So it changed the ecosystem of IPO now. In IPOs now, you have to come in profitable first and yes. then say you're raising capital to grow, right? Absolutely. So right now, changed. right now it all switched. Right now it <clears throat> yeah, all switched it's... because before there were a lot of like uh, unicorns that were just running around, you know, having some fancy product and that the uh, investors were fascinated. But I think that after WeWork situation, you know, especially after WeWork situation, why people yeah. are actually caring about the revenue, because like you, you got to see that, you know, this product actually can sell to its audience, you know, because when, uh, when we look at the WeWork, we understand that it was just pure rip-off investment, you know, first of all. And those were the, you know, the investor who simply had a very blind belief in a company that is positioning itself as a tech company for some crazy reason, which I do not understand still. You know, I can't understand why WeWork would call itself tech company. But still, it is tech company and, uh, you know, failed in going IPO, which it, which was also very ex- expected. But it was like just a huge bubble that burst at some point. Yeah, I mean, and you can't, you, you know, this whole thing with tech com- com- companies that classify them cer- uh, certain ways has to do with the valuation, right? So, yeah. but you can't be fooled by that anymore. I mean, people look at growth margin and retention. If you say you're a SaaS subscription revenue tech company, and your gross margins are like 40%, that's, you're not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you're just not right. So if you have lower than 90% retention, you're not, you know, so there's a difference between a service, a management service company, a technology enabled services sure. company, a technology company. And everybody's trying to say they're a technology company because they know that the valuations on that work that way. But just because you call it, that doesn't mean that's what it is. The, the value drivers, growth margin retention, they tell you the truth, you know? Right. So it reminds me, you know, back to your note, it reminds me of like when we had the, the tech bubble, the dot bomb, right? That mm-hmm. I survived through. It was very similar, right? Those valuations were based on just sex appeal, right? I mean, these are businesses that were just super sexy and everybody was all over it and they, they had no revenue plan or anything, right? They were just, people were just making mad investments into this and that died. And then it became, okay, you have to have an actual revenue model. And now it is, you have to actually be profitable, you know? So, you know, the, the market has, is learning, uh, (laughs) these lessons that are pretty friggin' obvious, (laughs) you know, um, that in the private equity world, we've learned right a a long time ago where you look at a business and you analyze a business based on real information, not based on, you know, the, uh, the sizzle and not the steak, you know? So I think that, you know, when you look at businesses now, going back to your initial question, I think that the reasons why businesses fail early on, I talked about why businesses fail later on, right? They raise capital, they, they get in that loop, and then they get to the point where their business is overvalued, or 
um, you know, the business fails because they can't raise money because the, you know, the valuation is too high and there's not enough room for investors to make money early on. Uh, you know, you look at businesses as an investor and you either bet on the horse or the jockey, right? If you were thinking about a horse race, you're thinking about you, the horse or the jockey, the jockey is the management team and the horse is the product. And there's a lot of people out there saying, okay, well, we bet on the team, which is betting mm -hmm. on the product, but these are startups. And 99% of the time, they've never been a jockey before. So it's dumb to bet on the jockey, right? And you're sitting there going, yeah, I'm going to bet on somebody that's never done this before. So my strategy is you bet on the horse, right? You look and you go, okay, I can bring to the table. I can help the entrepreneurs become what they need to be. I can help them become a jockey. So what I'm interested in is, are they coachable, number one? And number two, is the product actually there? Because worst case scenario... If the jockey is terrible, if the entrepreneur is really bad, as an investor, you can le have them exit the business, keep mm -hmm. their equity, and then you can still save the business, run it to an exit, and everybody makes money, including the founders, right? But if the product is bad, you can't fix the product. You can't right. fix bad products. So, <clears throat> you know, that's the second point that they fail is that they can't raise money because they can't seem to make the investor understand that the product is really good and they focus too much on the team. I see this all the time. I see deals where they're like, oh, I got this person, I got that person, I got this person. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You're the CEO, right? Have you ever built a business? No. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, let's talk about the product then. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Let's talk about yeah, something totally that I can take. Do you see what I mean? Like something I can Yeah, say. I do see I do see what you mean in it. And there comes like a really huge dilemma because I know for sure that sometimes especially huge corporations like Google, they buy the team instead of the business. And that is like when I know that people are working on the product, you know, very passionately and they believe in what they're doing. And then they get acquired and basically all their work on the product is kind of suppressed because the company initially needed the team of the people who created this product because they yeah, do Yeah, that's see, a different yeah. acquisition. Yeah, in those yeah. scenarios... They're thinking that, you know, the cost of a recruiter to go out and find a, yeah. a, a fully developed team. When I say developed, I mean, culturally, everybody works together really well and really efficiently and fast. Right. And they've proven that they work well as a team for uh, some businesses, these large businesses like that. The acquisition is just about the team, but they don't even think about the product because all it is is, uh, uh, you know, human resources thing. Right. It's just right. it's just shortcut to recruitment. Right. Um, those sort of acquisitions are usually lower, uh, lower valuation acquisitions. The multiples are much, much lower, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah, they happen, they happen pretty rarely. And, uh, you know, the team should uh, have some really exceptional people in it. And they are normally not even in public eye that much. You know, for example, Google in 2017 acquired iMatter. iMatter was an Eastern European startup, which, uh, had, uh, artificial intelligence technology integrated into, you know, into some neurological things. And uh, basically what they were doing, they were changing the color of hair of people on their pictures and videos, which seems to be a very, very trivial thing. And that startup was pretty popular. That application on iOS was, was like booming. And then, bam, suddenly they disappeared. This application is still there, but nothing was updated since uh, Google acquired them. Why? Because they needed people who knew this technology to implement this technology into some inner projects of the company. And nobody, nobody has heard about uh, iMatter anymore, even though they 
got acquired and they got pretty generous, you know, deal for sure. And uh, they all moved to the US from Eastern Europe. But, you know, nobody, nobody heard about the product as much as like about the people who are doing it. Yeah, I mean, those are those are I don't do the I focus. I have a a very streamlined focus, you know, because mm-hmm. I've done it so many times, you know, and so I've learned that this pattern has has a high success rate. So I always focus on, you know, looking at the the buyers of the business and what they want and what problems they're trying to solve and who their customers are and that sort of thing, and then align the product and the customer that we have to those buyers. Right. You can't force your business into another business. Uh, you have to build it that way from the beginning, right? Otherwise, what you get to is you go, okay, I have this customer base and I have these and then you have to go out and try to find a buyer. Well, a buyer for something like that, if you have EBITDA, is going to be some private equity venture capital group, mm-hmm. right? Who's going to buy it as an asset to, um, you know, to to make money for distributions to their investors, and and those people are paying much lower valuations, right? Because their whole play is to make money on margin, right? Mm-hmm. Versus uh, somebody who already has the customers' play is to make money on the customers that they've already paid to acquire. So they have way, their payback period is a lot less than the payback period for somebody who buys you. So for example, if a private equity buys you and you have 10 million in EBITDA and they pay 20 million, that's two years, right? Mm -hmm. But if if a company buys you for 20 million that has 20 million customers that are willing to buy your, your product at $5 profit to them on the CAC to LTV ratio, they pay it back in months. Right. So they can pay more for the business because the payback period is faster. Right. And they're they're building their overall. And at the same time, they're adding more stickiness to their relationships with their customers. Right. You know, so those those sort of acquisitions are are much. That's what I focus on. Right. Really, the high multiple acquisitions in a short amount of time can only be done if you start with the end in mind from the very beginning. And then you build towards that and every step you make and everything you do is building to that direction. And that includes building a good company. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's not like, oh, you just go slap customers together. I mean, you, you have low retention numbers if you build a bad company. So the value drivers, growth, margin, retention, they tell the truth. You build a bad company, your margins are going to be low, right? Right. The same is the same as with the product. I mean, that's that's like all comes together because people and I always like to, you know, to refer to people because whether it's B2B or B2C, people will use this product anyway. So um, at the end of the day, if they do not like it or if it's not optimal for them and really does not solve any pains of theirs, they will simply go away very, very fast and, uh, you know, without even regretting it. And you will be like thinking, okay, where to find a new audience where your initial audience, the first wave, which you had like the most loyal customers for you, potentially, they are already gone because you, you did not really focus on what, what matters, which is the product quality and like the, or the quality of service, which you provide that really depends. Yeah. It's a combination. I mean, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a SaaS company, you know, a real uh, technology company, Mm -hmm then the, the product itself is the most important thing, uh, right. you know, unquestioned. That's what I mean by uh, betting on the horse or the jockey, right? The <laughs> right, horse, right. The, the jockey can't ride, ride without a horse, right? So the default is the product. I, I agree with you 100%. The leverage that the product has depends on the team, whether or not the, 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 the product is 
actually leveraged appropriately in the marketing side and the customers are serviced appropriately has to do with the team. But you, you everything starts with the product. That is for sure. Well, in my industry, which is uh, more B2B focused, and uh, I work uh, mainly in consulting, which is a very tricky, you know, tricky, tricky industry when it comes to IT. You know, that is... Um, in very many cases, not 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 the, the the right thing to go with because here everything is ruled by relationships. So even if you have the worst product in the world, the company still probably would get it. Like for example, some big corporation would implement it to their architecture. Why? Simply because you had some uh, side relationship with uh, some management at this company, and uh, you all will benefit from this implementation. And uh, in the bigger picture, nobody really cares about the quality because probably they will do reassessment of this product in a couple of years. So this is what's like killing me, especially in B2B, because things still work like that. And smaller companies that have might have a pretty awesome product, but they absolutely have no way to approach those giant companies and just, you know, push their products to the front line to like to say, see here what I have. Look at my demo. It's much better than what you have right now. It's impossible because there are blockers. There are like gatekeepers who do not let it come through because the company already has established relationship. So have you have you ever experienced this situation? Yeah, and I build that into part of the process. I mean, partnerships become acquisitions. And a partnership is the development of a relationship. So when, you know, when when I work with my portfolio companies, the first thing I do is once I find out who the acquirers are, mm -hmm. the next thing I do is try to figure out how to get partnerships with those acquirers. And once you get a partnership, when a company buys another company, there are a few things that they need to get straight. One of them is, will the technology integrate? That's a risk factor, right? Yeah. That That's a risk factor. The second one is culturally, can we work together? And the third one is, you know, are, is there uh, accountabilities and best practices? Is there some description documentation that shows how the business functions? Okay, so if, value, if the value drivers are aligned, growth margin retention, and you already set up a partnership where you've already started the integration that benefits both parties, you've already eliminated two of the, of the group. Then, and because you've already started the integration, which by default starts a relationship. And then you start to get the cultural relationship. Now you know that the company, the two companies fit well together. Everybody's satisfied with that. And you're left with only uh, financial numbers, right? So, you know, this is why I said, again, you have to start, like if you want to sell a business three years from now, you need to start right now because that relationship needs to be in place for at least 12 months, sometimes 24 months before it's actually going to be called a relationship. So usually what I'll do is I'll have them start with a relationship develop the relationship and then take some fun funding from the buyer. Right. Mm -hmm. So you say, Hey, listen, we're doing a round. We'd like to sell you, you know, some of the equity in the business. If they buy into the business, now you've got your second marker in place, right? I'll call it a hook and a barb. Like when you go fishing, there's a hook mm -hmm. and then there's barb that prevents the fish from pulling off. Right. So the hook is, you know, we're going to benefit each other with this partnership, blah, blah, blah. The barb is, let's try to take some financing. Then you get some financing. Now now they have a vested interest. And now you've got legal involved. you got tech involved. you got services people involved. And everybody thinks this is a good situation. You let that run out for a little while, and then you move to an acquisition. Right. Right. Well, that is that is a very wise approach to build this relationship. So for many, many people, this might be like the first blocker on their way to, you know, to any kind of achievement. Because sometimes when you when you really come to the point where 
you need to act and you need a small kick, you know, this this small kick has nowhere to come from. So, I mean, I, I guess that that's why you got to be focused on building relationship. Even though I'm not a fan of this idea, I feel that I want to believe that a great product will find its buyer or will find its, like, user, you know, no matter what, because you have the great product. But unfortunately, 99%, you have to push it through using some, you know, some relationship and you got to pull the right strings, even if you have the most awesome product in the world. I mean, that, that's where marketing comes in. That's where sales come in, but also that's where the partnerships and relationship come in. Yeah, I agree that the, the relationship is key. What you have to do is define what relationship means, you know, because there's different types of relationships. And that's what I was trying to do. Like the there is the financial relationship, there's mm -hmm. the legal relationship, there's the technology relationship, there's the service delivery relationship. I divide companies into four functional areas. Software companies specifically, they all have four functional areas. Sales and marketing, service delivery, shared services, and product and tech. Everything folds into those four functional areas. So if you, you have downlines obviously in them, but those are them and those are the relationships you have to develop. You develop those relationships with the buyer and it makes the acquisition much smoother. And this is something, you know, I've done 12 times, right? So, you know, every single time I've, I follow the same pattern and it's, it's, it's never, fa I mean, it's never failed, you know, ever. It can take longer sometimes if you make a bad decision. If you choose a buyer that isn't the right buyer, then you can make a bad decision. For example, sometimes I'll talk to entrepreneurs and they're like, oh, we want to sell to Google. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay that you're not going to sell to Google. Google is a name, all right? Google has hundreds of divisions and mm -hmm. companies and thousands, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, you can't just say Google. You have to identify specifically. It's like somebody saying, I'm going to go to the United States. Well, yeah, first like, of all, what state yes. are you going to go to? <laughs> and then what county and then what city and then what neighborhood? And, you know, it's, it's not that simple, right? I'm going to sell to Amazon. Okay, hold on a second. Where <laughs> in Amazon, you know, so first of all, you have to make sure that you have the right, you know, destination so that when you're moving your company towards that destination, right? I mean, if you're two degrees off and you're crossing the ocean, you're going to end up in another continent. So you have to be very careful about how you pinpoint it's ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim, you know? Well, in my case, often it has been fire without aim. Yeah, well, you're, but, you're, but that's what you fix, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. You know, that is like the right planning. You know, it is the key to any normal outcome without any surprises, because, you know, any like good outcome cannot come out out of shitty plan. You know, that is that is for sure. And, uh, you know, that's that also like lesson learned hard way, you know, unfortunately. But that is that is what you have to do, especially when you deal with business, with you, when you deal with anything. You know, the same thing when when targeting, like you can't just like target um, a person who is, um, I don't know, the CEO of the company when you create, I don't know, even take the email campaign. You cannot just send your email to the CEOs and think that, okay, they will open and they will refer this uh, email to some, I don't know, to some manager of the department. You've got to like reach to that person, you know, directly. So you got to know your, you know, your, your way. But relationship, yeah, they definitely can be divided into four categories. But I always line up another one, which is called friendship. Yeah, <laughs> I feel this level. category can cross all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a level. I mean, you know, we had that acquisition that we just had. 
you know, because we had started that process three years earlier and because we had started with integration and then moved to partnerships at different levels and then took, uh, you know, a financial investment from them, the relationships were developed in that process with those different people, mm -hmm. the legal teams, the financial people, the technology people, everybody was establishing these relationships the whole time. So you do have to, you can't just go through the mechanics of doing it. You have to go through the process of trying to establish a relationship with those people uh, also in order for it to work. That's the cultural fit that they're looking for, you know, right. because there's this, a lot of times it's very difficult. You have this big corporation and then you have this little startup and the corporation's like, you know, how is this going to work? These people are like wild, right? Compared to our big organized corporation. And so in the process of working with them through this, you can show that in some scenarios, a startup can teach a lot to an old corporation. A young startup can teach a lot to a young corporation. And at the same time, they can say, listen, we can behave however you want. You want us to go with your, you know, IBM has this thing called blue washing, right? And mm -hmm. if you want us to be blue washed, that's cool. Yeah. Or we yeah. can come in and we can show you the way we do things and you can make the choice. But you do that when you're establishing the relationship. Like yeah. in this scenario, the business was sold to a very big publicly traded company. And we initially thought that they wanted us to be conformed to their uh, traditional way of doing things, but it actually worked the other way. It was interesting because the CEO came around and said, listen, we want you to change. We, we want you to integrate into us. Now, when I did my acquisition with eBay, I was told they want the minnow to swallow the whale. They wanted me to change them. They didn't want mm -hmm. them to change us. So in some scenarios, uh, you know, from the, the senior management looks at it in, in the way where they were, you know, they look at it and they go, man, this is a good idea to add some fresh blood you know, some fresh looks and change the way we're doing things. Maybe we're a little stale. So it's interesting because you figure these things out along that path, you know, from partnership to investment to acquisition, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that is true. And I totally agree that you must have the ability to blend in, but also you should have some, you know, distinctive features, which would just, you know, just put all the highlight on you. And uh, actually you will be noticed in some way. So you will be able to bring difference if necessary, or you will be able to fully blend in also if necessary, because the company that acquires you, you know, the one who pays this one orders all the music, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's the golden that rule. The case. Yeah, absolutely. So as well as the client is always right, you know, which, which sometimes kills me in uh, consulting, but you know, that is how you have to go because that is the way. If you see when the, when the website is developed in a crazy way, well, that is not uh, none of your business. If the client really likes it, and if it's not too much, then fine. <laughs> Let it be so. Yeah, you have um, to choose your battles. You have to be very <laughs> wise about the battles you choose. Now, you, you just got to be smart, like, to try to alter your own opinion, you know, to, to the client's opinion. That is for sure, you know, in, in my case, that's always the thing. So, one of the questions I really was curious about, what is more... Uh, beneficial for a startup to work with angel investor or work with venture firm? Uh, well, I'll tell you from an entrepreneur's perspective and from an investor's perspective, um, it depends on, you know, if you're dealing with angels that aren't experienced angels. So a lot mm -hmm. of times you see these angels that are like doctors, lawyers, you know, people that make a lot of money, save some money, sell a house, inherit capital, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And they make an investment. They can be a nightmare because they don't know 
how these things go and they ask questions uh, you have to understand how to manage them because sometimes the questions they ask are not really what they're after. You know, you, you have to sort of ask why they're asking the question and, and figure out what they really want to know. And so they can take a lot of time and it can be very difficult to manage them. Now, on the other hand, if you're dealing with angels that are, are experienced, then it's, it's a lot easier. Now on the uh, VC side. So if you're dealing with, you know, any kind of private equity on the other side, that presents its own problems because the fund, you know, accelerator incubators or funds or anybody that mm -hmm. has a fund that they put together for you has an obligation to their limited partners, right? So those LPs, they are essentially representing those LPs to you and there's a lot of rules and regulations. And mm -hmm. so because you're not talking to the investor and you're talking to somebody that's representing the investor, that can be extremely difficult. Um, most of the time in my situation, if I see a deal and there is uh, either a lot of people on the cap table or there's, you know, VCs and that sort of stuff involved, I don't mm -hmm. even come close to it because <laughs> yeah. I know that there's a difference between me as the actual investor looking at the deal and working on the deal than their position, right? They're interested in making the 20%. They usually charge two and 20, right? So 2% yeah. of what they're managing and 20% carry. Well, that's their money. That's their business model, right? So that business, the, the position that that business is in doesn't necessarily always align with that because, because of their financial model and because of their relationship and their obligations to their limited partners, right? So I find it, as an entrepreneur, I found it extremely difficult. Um, I found that to get a PE, uh, you know, I mean, usually you go angel, VC, PE, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you if you go to a VC level, you better have your shit together and uh, understand that the the generation of the business is going to be changed from a dynamic startup that can pivot and move and do this sort of thing to something that is already on a track and it's going to stay on that same track. Like you're going to give up a lot of freedom and your ability right. to change the business. So I usually suggest to people start out with an angel, but an experienced angel, somebody who knows what they're doing. I mean, you know, the money that you get from an investor is, is not nearly as important as the advice that they should be offering you. Right. You know, and the connection. So, you know, what they call smart money. So if you are raising money from somebody just because you're desperate to raise money to get your business going, that is going to come back and bite you. And I've seen a lot of businesses go out of business because of that. Um, and investors lose their money and it just turns into a shit show. On the other hand, uh, if you raise money from a sophisticated angel who has some experience, they may be able to help you a little, but they're not operators. And there's a huge difference between an investor and an actual operator in terms of the advice they give you. A lot of times investors will give you horrible advice because they're giving you advice from an investor's perspective and what they've heard from other deals, not from an operator's perspective. And because, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees, right? So I think that to answer your question, I would say that choose an angel, but choose a wise mm -hmm. angel that's done this before. The other mistake I see people do all the time is they say, all right, I want to raise 5 million. I'm like, well, how long is that 5 million going to last you? And they're like five years. And I'm like, why the hell are you raising five years worth of money? <laughs> I mean, that's like taking money off of your credit card and taking the cash and putting it under your mattress and paying interest on it when you're not even using the money. That's just dumb, right? Right. And you don't know how much you need. So why don't you just raise as much as you need to get to the first marker that's going to raise your valuation? So if you say, 
I'm raising pre-seed capital. The next round you should do, which should be a proof of concept or minimal viable product, right? Then do another round and another round. The reason why uh, the entrepreneurs will usually raise more than they need is because it's such a pain in the ass to get the investors. (laughs) But if you get the right investors in the first place and that investor most of the time we'll understand that there are follow-ons that are re- that are required to make the investment work or they'll help you get the money and that eliminates that so if you do it correctly in the first place then you only raise what you need at the point that you need the money and you shouldn't have to worry about raising the rest of the capital because if you chose the right investor they should help you with that right right so having the plan even before you start you know that is critical for sure so where to look for these investors okay where where do these unicorns <laughs> leave yeah they, they're very elusive right and, <laughs> they are <laughs> yeah i mean <clears throat> i think that um you know there's all these platforms angel list and things like that you can yeah. go into um, to try to find them but You know, <clears throat> to be honest, I get all of my deals from my social media or from articles or from things like podcasts like this. Um, so if I was an investor or an entrepreneur looking for an investor, I'd be going where smart money lives, right? So if I write, you know, I write an article, maybe two articles a month that get published in pretty high profile places for mm-hmm. fortune and entrepreneur and stuff, right? Look for those articles, Venture Beat, you know, things like that, right? Listen to the podcast. If you hear a guy like me on the podcast, that's that's a good invest. That's where you find the smart money, right? Versus, you know, you go to a lot of people that go to an accelerator. And I think accelerators serve a really good purpose. But if you're going to an accelerator just to raise money, that's the wrong reason to go yes, to an accelerator. Absolutely. That is that is always like crushing. You gotta go to accelerator to get experience, you know, that because only at accelerator you might have, you know, this this like the right environment to actually boost the product and like, you know, boost the understanding of the business. But you know, to raise money for raising, that's no reason to do it. Yeah. It's not, you know, you it doesn't, you know, you it's just not the it's not It's purpose, right? They add yeah. that on as a benefit because because they want deal flow. Yes. Because they charge money for the investor. You know, they make money off of everybody. Uh, you know, of that's everybody. Called. You know, that is the yeah. case. They make money off every single person. They make person money off everybody. Involved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so they they do have a purpose, and I don't want to. You know, I'm not trying to downplay them. It's it's they're you know a lot of them are really good organizations. But yeah. if you're sitting there trying to raise capital, that's probably that's not the best place to go. I've had so many nightmares with uh, a, you know deals that I go to they went through one of the accelerators they come out they've got 20 people on the cap table a bunch of them are like don't know anything about investing and I'm trying to put together a deal and explain to them how we're going to move the business forward and it's just this colossal nightmare uh, and it's just not worth it right so yeah most of the time what we end up doing is just buying them out You know, if we really want to do the deal, we go in and we go, look, well, we're going to buy everybody out for this much. And sometimes they say no. And uh, so far, every time they've said no, the business goes out of business, um, which is kind of like, you know, sad. Right. And I really feel bad for the entrepreneur. Uh, I had one with this um, gal in San Diego who went through an accelerator, got these investors involved. And then I was like, okay, we're going to do a million dollar round. They, these people had like 10 grand in and mm-hmm. five grand and 25 grand and that sort of thing. And we were doing a million dollar round to come in. And in order to do that and take over lead, we had to change some of the terms, right. To make mm-hmm. it work for, for, you know, ultra high net worth individuals, you know, people that are worth a hundred million, you know, 500 million, a billion. 
And when you go into that sort of situation, they, they have expectations. You know, these are sophisticated professional investors. And so you go back to the, to the group and I went back to them and I go, okay, here's how this is needs to be that works. And then I, I had like hours of phone calls with this one guy who had $10,000 and I'm like, are you, sh- dude, <laughs> what are you doing investing in the companies? Like, like 10,000, are you out of your mind? You know, like what, how did anybody even let this person invest, you know? Uh, and it screwed up the whole deal. And then she went out of business and it was heartbreaking for me because she worked so hard and she was smart. She had a really good business. It was a good idea. Everything was lined up and the investors ruined it for her because they were the wrong types of investors. And even though I was trying to come in and I mean, that was going to give these guys a payoff and everything. And they just were too, you know, I think, I mean, it can appear from the outside as greedy, but it, it really comes down to, uh, misunderstanding how these things actually work. This isn't the stock market. This isn't real estate. This isn't restaurants. This isn't a medical clinic. You know, it's not some inheritance plan. You know, it doesn't work like that, right? So make sure that you choose the right investor. That is like, I can't, I can't urge that enough. Take the time and choose the right investor. Right. Right people is always the case. Right people. And when it comes to any situation in your life, you just need to have the right person to guide you through, whether it's business, whether it's your life, like whether it's your lifetime partner, this person needs to be the right one. You know, that is the key. And uh, yeah, I feel that uh, your input was pretty valuable for the audience. So see, guys, you got to go to the podcast and listen to them. Actually, that's where smart money is. Thank you. <laughs> So for sure. So this episode is coming to an end and I must say that it, Greg, it was extreme pleasure meeting you, extreme pleasure to having a podcast with you and you're super knowledgeable, super approachable, which I appreciate the most in people. And uh, your professionalism is on the top. I've been enjoying every single minute of this podcast and, you know, it's just amazing. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you very much. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste as well. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening and uh, I'll be back very very soon. It was Anita and her splinter business stories. Stay tuned for next episodes and have a beautiful wonderful time living your life. Bizu bizu. <laughs>